Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. There are thousands of hopefuls in any field, really, but there's something about LA, show business, the chance of fame and fortune. There are so many of us here, all working for a shot, and there are just as many paths to making it. It really becomes about finding your own process and learning to engage with it. But how do you do that? Today I talk with sportscaster and writer Ghazal Hassan, who has a lot to say about the importance of betting on yourself. We all know sometimes you're the only one who will be, and in Hollywood more than anywhere else, confidence, earned or not, can carry the day. Deeper than that though, you have to develop your craft and deliver the goods. We delve into Gazal's foundation in philosophy and college radio, what matters in sportscasting, and ways to develop your craft as a writer. Gazal Hassan, welcome to Hearthside Salons. It's great to be Hearthside, Heidi. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I was thinking about the name today. We called it that because we were all stuck inside by our own hearths for, you know, 16 months now. So I thought, well... It's, it's where this is coming from, where we're stuck with, so. I don't even know that I have a hearth, but yeah, thank you. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> well, so you and I go way back, and I thought it would be really fun to talk to you, first of all, because you have a voice for radio, as we all know. But Heidi, you're only 30 years old. How could we go way back? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you also have all these interesting stories, and you've got, um, I find your path very fascinating so i'll be touching on a few of these things today you and my mom i'll have to take you both for dinner one day oh i would love Actually, that that's a lot my, my mom doesn't find my path very fascinating at all but that's a whole other story well that was the first thing i wanted to ask you about so you grew up in jersey right mm -hmm. and so what were your you know your son of some son your first generation son of immigrants correct yeah yeah so yeah like, like um, so many so my what? father decided very early that I wasn't uh, I wasn't equipped for the family business, so he sent which, me west. No, which, um, which was what was the family business? No, my my parents were both in education. My father is a college professor, and my mom was in an educational administrator for um, for local kind of. She actually ended up, she did a number of different things, but kind of the 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 crux of the thing is she helped administrate an after school program that was publicly run. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting because like, she had like politicians, kids who were problem kids and was able to kind of straighten them out. So, you know, education was really the focus and, um, you know, Wait, it kind of worked out. So it, it that's kind of what the push was for all all myself and my siblings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a typical pretty, you know, more or less, you know, uh, more or less a typical suburban New Jersey upbringing. You know, yeah. uh, a lot of malls. It was the summer at the shore. Right, right. Uh, a lot of Cape you know, May. Yeah, uh, we were we were Wildwood, and yeah, sure. uh, like Wildwood was kind of like the where we would go. Uh, yeah, not that far down. I mean, it wasn't until I got older that I, you know, Seattle City kind of was a little bit uh, after that. Atlantic City, th that sure. stuff. No major traumas, you know. It was just kind of that immigrant experience in North Jersey, which is fair, you know, uh, really standard. Fairly, yeah, fairly common, you yeah. know. Well, were uh, they? I made, did they I, have a? Do they have expectations of you? Like, do they were like, you got to be a doctor or a lawyer or like, or, yeah, or was it sort of certainly. like, son, follow your heart? Certainly, certainly. It was, yeah, it was be a professional, have something professional mm. that you can do, Sure. Um, which is fairly common, 
You know, um, yeah. we had a lot of doctors, engineers in the family. Um, I think my I think my lie was that the whole time was I was going to go to law school. That was kind of I mean, it wasn't a lie to them. It was kind of a lie to myself. I'm like, OK, mm. what can I do to take my interests and my skills and present them to the outside world in a palpable manner? And that was, you know, being a lawyer. I'm like, All right. You know, and follow the path and, you know, high school, college. And then that's where I met you. And so I, I, I fully intended to be a lawyer. I think you put it in the, in the preview. I was a philosophy major in college. And well, that, that was my next question is, yeah. how did you then end up as a philosophy major? I mean, two reasons. I wanted to be able to give snazzy quotes in, you know, in cocktail room conversations. And it was kind of a pathway to perhaps pursue the study of law. You know, there are a couple of, you know, we do a lot of readings if you're a philosophy engineer. And, and UC Irvine, as you know, at the time, was kind of like the philosophy department was kind of like a burgeoning area. There was a lot of professors that wanted to be there. And there was a big rivalry because for the most part, it was, uh, you know, rationalist. You know, Descartes was kind of the the, the crux of the of the curriculum. And then Jacques Derrida came in. I was going to uh, say, Derrida kind of, was there. Yeah. So my, you know, my, the professor that I kind of had the most connection with, my advisor, he was a big academic rival of Derrida. Ooh. So therein lied the rub. So I kind of learned a little bit about how academic, you know, battles take place. You know, you have TAs writing graffiti in the humanities bathrooms from against one professor and against the other. It was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. interesting. I, I didn't know it at the time, obviously, but it was a pretty big deal at the time. And to the like, I guess he, uh, Derrida started in the philosophy department and there was such a controversy they had to move him to create uh, to comparative culture. Yeah. And it was a whole big behind, you know, all the behind the scenes stuff that we had no idea about uh, just being students there. Sorry. I hated that class the most. I, oh, this, you did. When I had to read the Derrida and, and Kant and all that stuff, I was just like, I, this is above my pay grade. I don't get it. I don't want to get it. I don't like trying to get it. Like I just, so I was always fascinated because it was so your thing and you, you were always really hard to argue with because you could talk circles around all of us. You know, I, I, I think my gateway was all the platonic stuff, you know, like Socrates, Plato and mm. Aristotle was my gateway. And, you know, that's like freshman core sure. type stuff. I kind of viewed it as kind of like a world, like a worldview. It's like, I mm -hmm. you know, the basics are obviously you read the rationalists, you read the skeptics and you kind of move up, you know, from there. I found it just really be interesting. It was really you know, kind of what do you call it? Classical, kind of the classical college experience when every year you were there, kind of the it, the readings and the understanding became more uh, more interesting and more challenging. Um, and then by the, the, you know, the last year I was there, I was kind of taking these upper division classes where it was stuff. It wasn't a lot of classical stuff. It was a lot of contemporary stuff. And I remember that was the first time I read Appia, you know, and he just about five, six years ago, he had a big book that came out about like it was called cosmopolitan it was about how how are you a citizen of the world how to be a mm. citizen of the world and he was kind of touching on this stuff you know back 20 25 years ago when we were reading it which i found fascinating and it was there that i took and it was with all the you know what's in the news right now the best class i ever took there and i'll confess the only reason i took it because it was a midweek class that met once a week it was a three-hour class on a wednesday mm. my last semester in college it was a course on race and gender. Oh, and, nice. you know, interestingly enough, it was taught by a kind of a kind of a, like a longstanding professor who was fairly conservative. But the readings he got us were amazing. They were all kind of more contemporary stuff that we were reading. And so, you know, reading, I mean, all the stuff that's coming out now about 
critical race theory. I find it very interesting because I think a lot of people in that class kind of had that attitude kind of rolling in, but he really kind of, you know, took it in a very different direction. And it was pretty, it was a, I, I, easily the best class I ever took at that, at, you know, at the, at that level. That's amazing. See, like, and I feel like now I would really enjoy that and embrace it. And at the time I was just not in that mindset. I, I was, you know, doing comp lit and, and, and just English and creative writing. And so I was just like, I just want to be in the story. Yeah. Make me think about what's outside the story. I don't know if you have to get this, but I, you know, cause obviously philosophy is very reading heavy and you know, you go away from it, right? Everybody kind of, you know, you move on, you graduate, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you get away from it. But it's just the last, maybe it's just age. In the last 10 years, I find myself kind of going back to a lot of the stuff I had read. Um, I just had a debate with a, with a friend of mine about, uh, who was a, a social science major. And it's a common kind of, so we're talking about Schopenhauer. And if you're a, if you're a political, you know, if you're a politi- political person, you, the the assumption is that um, Schopenhauer kind of roots his his belief and his his writings in Hegel, but from the philosophy standpoint, like especially where we went to school, especially at UC Irvine with that faculty, Schopenhauer for them was very much rooted in Descartes. So it's it's very interesting that you know twenty five years later to have that kind of rear its ugly head, that same debate, you know, um, and that's kind of the scene behind the scenes stuff, you know, like I was sure. I was a uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, like, like uh, just trying to find my footing, but they were some of the, uh, the more advanced students, the all, you know, it was kind of their, the, it was a weird kind of a hazing, right? They would kind of, there were certain non-majors they would love to haze and they right. just love to haze in class and not in a negative way, but kind of intellectually haze a lot of the social science majors, knowing they're bent on the subjects and the topics were very different from what a humanities major would, would how a humanities major would approach it. Right. I'll have to write something about bull, intellectual bullying at some point, but yeah. Yeah, that's, I, that, I, I think you should. And I was just thinking while you were doing that and having those uh, intellectual conversations, underdog Stubbs and I were breaking into the riot tunnels under the campus and running around for no reason. So yeah, I think you, know. you guys got the better, yeah, I think you guys got the better deal. <laughs> so I think that's the better deal of that. Well, so, so we did, we met at UC Irvine. We met specifically at KUCI, the college radio station that uh, was still yeah. beloved, beloved part of my life. Um, the and I feel like that's where all the cool kids, like all the anti, you know, we weren't going to join the Greek system. We weren't going to be part of like that stuff. We were doing our own thing and, and wanting to talk about it. And college radio in the nineties, a very specific time, but also specifically you and freedom of voice. And I think that was, you know, right in line with what you're saying, your talk show where you t- discussed the things of the, the issues of the day, the topics of the day. I remember just sitting there going, I couldn't. I couldn't keep, I, I love to listen to it, but I could never have hosted it at the time. Cause I wasn't, I could, I didn't have the knowledge you had about how everything worked. And, and I was always, really I really impressed. didn't have any knowledge though. I, that, it's, like, <laughs> it's funny you bring that up. I, I was thinking about this cause you, you did let me know that you wanted to discuss KCI. I was thinking a lot about it, but it was interesting because to me, look, look, you know, now you know, it was the old Muhammad Ali quote that if you think the same at 50 as you did at 20, you've wasted 30 years of your right. life. So I look, I look back and I just, I say, I think to myself, what an incredibly inclusive created out creative outlet that was. Yeah. Because I mean, you think about some of the people we were and are still friends with from that, like, like, like maybe, you know, I, I maybe include you in this, like, would we have been friends outside of that environment? You know, what right. a wonderful environment that was to bring so many people together. And yeah, they were kind of 
little individual groups and cliques and enclaves within that structure. But there were so many different points of view coming together. And I still really value that experience. I find, I don't know if you find this, but I find that when you meet somebody who's worked in college radio, wherever they've worked, it's kind of the same kind of a deal. There are exceptions, obviously, to every rule. And it's like, there's a language that we all have in common, which I think is incredibly cool. And even with the, you know, with the gaps of generations, another friend of mine I talked to made this comment about, they still listen because now, you know, you can listen online. So yeah. you can go to KUCI.org. And if you're in, you know, Minnesota or Madagascar, you can tune into the station. And he was talking about, well, you know, it was really good when we were there and it's still pretty good because it's still, you know, awesome. it's still presenting the the music or whatever type of show you're doing you're kind of presenting stuff you can't maybe get other other from other sources sure which i you know i just found and i I, you know and i you know this i agree with you it was definitely one of the 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 very positive experiences most positive experiences i had attending that large university yeah Uh, it was it was formative for me it was formative for me and it shaped my my musical taste and my musical um Ability to reach out, I guess, like, you know, to to sample other genres and other artists that I would never have otherwise been curious about. You know, you were like you're saying, you're talking to so many people from so many other backgrounds and like, oh, this guy's talking about this world music and that guy's talking about this, you know, hip hop artist I've never heard of. And this guy's talking over here about this other jazz artist. And all of a sudden, you know, you're you're opening yourself to so many more things than to just the, the three bands you came in liking there was so much going on, you know, in the nineties about first, you know, hip hop, obviously, uh, but just the the world, you mentioned world music, the international scene, it really, that was a real great exposure to the international scene. Yeah. You know, in terms of international musicians and that, you know, now it's fairly commonplace, right? Cause you can jump on YouTube and you know, you can know like, what's the, what are the top hits in Algeria or what's cool in, you know, what's cool in, in Senegal right now. You know, you couldn't really do that. It, it was like just these records would come in or these CDs would come in and our music people would listen to them and like, wow, this is this yeah. is just off the charts. We got to put this, you know, we got to put this out for the people that, to listen to. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, so I, I you know, I, and I, I was looking for the right word and it was funny. I got it from a, from a sports conversation I'd had about just the idea of, you know, inclusivity, which again is a big buzzword now. But I mean, truly, you had people who were there all the time. You had people who just come in and do their show and leave from just the time commitment to the philosophical commitment. It was just really, there were so many different types of people there. And, you know, if you, you know, like you're like yourself, we've stayed friends with so many of those people and it's just wild, the range of paths we've all taken. Yeah. It's like, it was the best possible fraternity slash sorority that we could have ever unwittingly tripped into. So you, you leave UC Irvine you leave us behind. You're a year ahead of me. And then you end up at UCLA in a writing MFA. So it seems to me that you reached a decision point about lawyer, not lawyer. MFA in writing is not lawyer. Yeah, I I stumbled for a little bit. I was doing some freelance work in sports radio at the time. And I was working, you know, just corporate, you know, typical job. You know, I pay the bills, keep the lights on, right? And I stumbled into a, a writing class. You know, I wrote something which I didn't think was particularly good. And it was just kind of, I think a friend of mine and I were just taking the class to kind of hang out, you know, one day a week because in, you know, I remember in college, in addition to doing um, the radio, I was part of this comedy writers group and we'd meet once a week and then we, you know, we all graduated and we stopped doing it and we wanted to do it again. So my friend says, hey, I'm taking this class. It's an extension class at UCI. And I was working in Orange at the time. 
and so was he. He's like, he's like, you should take it. And we took it and, you know, it was just fun to hang out again and, and do creative stuff again. And at the end of the class, it was funny because towards the end of the class, I was like, I was, a bunch of stuff was going on in my life and work and whatnot. And so I went to the professor and I said, you know, I don't know that I'm going to be able to finish this thing. And I don't, how do we do about that? And she said, no, you're going to finish. Okay. I don't care. I won't, if you don't want me to give you a grade, I won't give you a grade, but you need to finish, you know? And so I'm like, Ooh, you know, I kind of, I was like, well, it's pretty coded. You know, this, 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 uh, this, this lady serious. So I ended up finishing the script and then she pulled me aside and said, you know, I don't know what your situation is, this, that, and the other, but if you wanted to pursue this further, I would encourage you to do that. And that's kind of was the gateway that led me to ending up at UCLA, which, and again, same, same kind of experience being in the MFA there. It's just a great, inclusive, creative outlet. And, you know, I met many people who I'm friends with today. And yeah, it was just a tremendous community there and just a tremendous opportunity to uh, flex your creative muscle. You know, people always denigrate the term safe space, but it really, you know, truly was a safe space. You could, you could write a, you know, you could write a, a, a script about a, a goldfish chasing a shoelace in the, you know, in his fishbowl. And it was, it was just as valid as any kind of high concept type of project. They were on, you were on equal footing. It was all about how you executed it. Listen, I'll sum it up for you. If I don't go to UCLA, I would have never met Luke Skywalker. So I met Mark Hamill for Amazing. people who are my age. It said, you know, if you told seven-year-old me, you're gonna bump <laughs> into Mark Hamill randomly, and he's gonna ask you to sit down and rap with him. I'm like, well, I, I've succeeded. Like that's the greatest yeah. thing in the world, right? Benchmark. I met Luke Skywalker and I met Fonzie. Those are the two <laughs> greatest things I could ever do. So yeah. I love it. I'm just wondering now, like all these years later, like what what advice do you have for writers or people who are just coming out of UCLA or maybe just thinking about going in or, or, or any, taking any writing training? Like yeah, what? I'm not, I'm really not big on advice. I'm just big on like the one thing I think we as writers and as creatives don't do enough is bet on ourselves. Hmm. And, you know, like if you, I don't know if you're a gambler at all, but if you're a gambler, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. So I think, you know, you're so tied to the, you're so, you know, we've talked, I think we've talked about this, just not even talked, we've kind of emailed about this, right? Um, what I really learned is um, just about uh, really engaging the process, engaging your process. You know, it's weird because we live in a time now where even the idea of the pro of process has been commodi uh, commodified, right? People are selling you seminars to lose weight, to you know, to be mentally, you know, uh, you know, to be mentally satisfied, to, to write scripts, to do this, to do that. But I think what we don't spend enough time doing is really understanding, you know, like what really is our process? I, I, I really enjoy doing this. And my sister has two young kids, two girls, they're 11 and seven. And she'll always be like, man, am I, am I doing it? Like, she's like, I just did this with the kids. Cause you know, the pandemic presented a bunch of challenges and people sure. who are parents understand. It's like, I just did this with my, am I doing the right thing? And I'm like, like what, you know, like what else are you going to do? There's no manual for, right. you know, how do you keep a seven-year-old engaged during a pandemic? There really isn't, you know, you have to kind of trust how you come up until then. It's, I, I want to say it's Billy Wilder. It isn't Billy Wilder who says, if the third act of your script is struggling, go back to the first act. Yeah. You know? And I've used that in, in as a sports analogy, you know, because I had a coach tell me this. So for those who don't know, I cover college basketball and college basketball season, they play between November and March. And, but they train, you know, they start training in August. 
So August and September are very important months to get your foundation down, right? And I remember there was a team I was covering many years ago, and they were struggling. And they were, play, you know, their players were pretty good. So I didn't understand why. Why is this team having so much trouble winning? And one of the assistant coaches was new. He hadn't, hadn't been there the year before. So I was sitting with him on the bus one day and said, what is it? Because you guys are close in every game and you can't seem to win. And he tells me, you can't fix an August problem in November. Oh. Meaning there were things they needed to address before the season started that weren't addressed. So as a result, now they're struggling with those things. And it reminded me of the, you know, the Billy Wilder quote about, okay, your yes. third act is falling apart. Well, there's something in the first act that you didn't do right. Yes, um, the importance so, of structure, which, yeah, yeah. Because like, so know, you, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I really, it's more to me. It's become more process than structure. But yeah, that's hmm. that's that is. In, you well, know, it's, if it's doing your foundational work. If you're not doing the work, you can't just like barf out pages based on nothing and have it be good. Like you have to have done some foundational <laughs> thinking about who the characters are, thinking about what they might need to accomplish, what might stand in their way. But it is also how how you there, there's there, people different people engage in different ways, mm -hmm. um, and that's really you know it's something like we talk about play by play. You know what I what I tell people about you know I have I have acquaintances and and professional people that I worked as a writer with, and they're like wow you know that's really you know like it's great that you're doing the radio and the broadcasting thing, but I always thought you'd be you know you kind of be writing, and I said well I feel like I'm storytelling in real time. Mm. You know, and doing, you know, doing play by play, I feel like I'm kind of doing, you know, storytelling in real time. And it's interesting that you bring up structure, because whether it, what I was writing scripts or whether I'm calling games, there is a structure to what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the one thing, and it, it's been a while since I've really engaged on the film side, when it comes to a, putting out a script, right? What exactly is, stru you know, what is structure, right? How closely related to that story is structure a bunch of page counts that you need to do this by this page or this by this page or is structure really what's the evolution of the character? You know, it reminds me of when it was, I think it's Justice Potter had the quote about obscenity that, you know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Mm. And that's kind of how I feel a little bit. Like I know on some level that I'm doing a degree of structure there, there, you know, there's like, you know, when you, especially you're doing a baseball game, it's nine innings, right? So right. It's a perfect canvas. It's like writing a script. Like the first three innings is act one. The second three innings is act two. And the third three innings is act three. So it's perfectly set up for you to do that three act structure. But there's things that happen that take, take sure. you out of that, you know? Sure. Um, so I find that really interesting. And, and as a writer, one of the things I always found, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, totally fascinating was how there were so many, all these writers that I respected all had very different processes, mm. you know? And I mean, don't quote me on this. I think it was Soderbergh that said before, you know, he, he was a writer before he was a director and he talked about how he, he never written two scripts the same way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. See, yeah. for me, it's been all about decoding the process and decoding structure and putting it together in such a way that it's the curriculum that I now teach. Right, so it was like, right. oh, here's what I didn't understand at that point. Let, and now let me, now that I figured it out, let me teach you. So like that's, you know, but also understanding here are some guidelines, but you know, there are no rules really like figure it out for yourself. What works, throw away what, what I tell you that doesn't serve you and figure it out. Yeah. No, but, I, it's funny. You mentioned the class I took was with Linda Voorhees mm -hmm. and it was called demystifying the process. 
Ah, you know? I never got to take and a so, class with her. Yeah, this is many years. I mean, this is, and she was just kind of starting out teaching. She'd been, I mean, she just kind of sold her first big thing and she got, you know, and it was funny because she taught us all this stuff, a lot of structural stuff, you know, and then at the end of the class, she's basically like, okay, I've kind of given you a blueprint to attack this problem of, you know, writing the screenplay, but he's like, I'm not asking you to make it your new religion, you know? So basically she like spends 10 weeks taking us through this process and then says, okay, now it's up to you to pick and choose, you know, what's right for you. It's weird now because there's like an entertainment tonight angle to it. Right. It's always the, the rags to riches story about the guy who was writing scripts and was stacking cans of tomato paste at the grocery store. And now he's a millionaire, Mm. but I, I, you know, it's, it's, um, if you're a movie person, it's the Godfather versus Goodfellas, right? Like the Godfather is the arias and the romanticism of this, you know, this family and they happen to be involved in crime and blah, 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 blah. And the Goodfellas is kind of like the ugly truth, you know, mm-hmm. like this is what the, this is what the, the kind of to get in the lower level people, this is how they deal with it. Um, and I, that's why I love like reading the first person accounts of how people kind of come through their process. Mm. because a lot of it's been curated now there's not as much you know like raw back in the 90s like these these writers and these directors were kind of releasing their almost like diary like a film diary mm. I remember Ma- uh, Spike Lee did a film diary of Malcolm X and it kind of just chronicled everything from him getting the rights to do it to writing the script to you know producing the movie and all that and it was just fascinating on what the process is like for somebody like that yeah well one of the things we were talking about over email was the whole the, the, the fact that structure is actually liberating. And you sent me the Bomani Jones TED talk, which totally blew my mind. And we actually added it to our curriculum. So like part of our like things we send out yeah. that we recommend people the, watch. I think it's the freedom, the freedom of structure, right? Is that what he said? That's what yeah. it's called, right? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, and, and I was so struck because his journey was exactly what mine was. Like, I don't need to learn your stuff because I'm going to figure it out. Oh, I just made it so much harder on myself by thinking I somehow didn't need that stuff. And I'm like, I came to it from the back end, the hard way, the same way he did. And so I just thought everything he said was so spot on. It really is interesting. You know, I'm not, I have zero musical talent, but I have a brother who's extremely talented in, in music and he's a drummer by trade, but he can play a bunch of instruments. And if you think about it, I mean, structure is basically music, right? Whether, whatever you're doing, whether it's scales or chords or whatnot, whatever your level of expertise in music, there's kind of a foundation which you need before you can actually play music, right? You know, like play, play whether you're playing chopsticks or Mozart, there's a process to it. And you can, uh, you, you can ascribe that to any other part of life, whether it's, you know, cooking a meal in your kitchen or writing a script. And, and that, to me, that's the fascinating part uh, of, of all that is... There isn't, you know, structure obviously is important, but it's more to me, I think what I got out of Lonnie's talk is it's how, how do you engage the structure, right? Mm. A, a colleague of mine was talking to me a couple of weeks ago. So he's got a daughter who's at three. So she's got these puzzles and obviously, you know, he's an attorney, but like with the pandemic, he's home a lot. So he's kind of engaging with his daughter on this level and he likes to just lay the puzzles out and then she'll do them, right? And they're like, there's like a group of four puzzles she's got. And she'll go from one to the other and eventually she'll finish them all. You know, his father's an engineer. So his father wanted to come and play with the granddaughter. So he's like, of course, come over. She's doing her puzzles. So he come over and his, her, his father, who's an engineer is pulling his hair out. How oh, can you no. let her just do, you know, how can, and he's like, no, no, no. We're going to let her engage her own pro. He's an attorney, right? Yeah. Like, we're going to let her engage that process. 
And and it just it is his father was so frustrated. He was like telling her the answers. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's the last thing I want you to do. I don't want you to tell her what to do. Let her finish. You know what? I think one of them was like a fish. And then one of them was like a dog. And there's like just different things that she's trying to put together. And she's like, he's, he's like, I, you know, she will do them. She will finish all four of them. But you got to let her kind of engage her process. So that's kind of the way I look at this, that the structure part of it is it can work both ways, you know, yeah. badly and, and well for you. It's just you have to make that conscious decision of how to engage part of the what, the creative, whatever it yeah. is, right? Whether you're, you know, building a bed or, you know, or cooking ceviche or making ceviche, you know, there's a process to it, which you need to figure out how it works for you. Yeah. I'll have that with students that'll come to me and say, but I'm trying to do this thing and I can't make it work. And then I'm like, well, then don't do it. Do something else. Come at it another way. And it's like that old, like, hey, doc, it hurts when I do this. It's like, well, then don't, don't do that. You know, for the UCLA people, if anybody's from UCLA, I have a very distinct memory of Linda, you know, and at UCLA, as you know, you come and you pitch a story and then you have to write that story in 10 weeks. And a woman came in and she it was a brilliant story that she had pitched. It was in essence, it was like a woman woman James Bond basically you know and so Linda stops her and she goes that is a brilliant story and you should absolutely write that but we know each other and knowing where you are I don't know that you're at the level to write that script right now I think in the spring quarter you'll be able to write that script I'm going to leave it up to you but that is a that is the best idea you've had since you've been here I think you should write that as your spring script, not your fall script, but that's up okay. to you, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of like, okay, like, you know, that's, to me, that's coaching, right? Yes. That's, that's a pitcher who has a really good slider, but his fastball is getting turned around. And the coach is like, okay, you know, this time through the order, you're going to start everybody off with a slider, you know? So that's, and, and that's, that's difficult. I don't know. I'm sure you have longstanding students yeah. who maybe, you know, you know, you know, their peccadillos a little bit better than maybe they even do. Yeah. Um, but I go back to a quote. There's a basketball coach, John Calipari. He's now a coach at Kentucky. And he talks about working with you know students. And he says the hardest thing for him is when he kind of knows and he wants what this, you know, what's best for the player before the player does. Because he sees it's not going to work because I can't want it more than you. Right, right. right. So that's a great segue into because like I remember back in the day you were always a sports guy you always were talking about basketball how then did you get into sports casting a lovely uh, well I mean so I was working on you know I was working as a writer I think we were you were kind of you were in LA at the time it was I think it was back in about 2007 there was a writer strike right so I had about two or three projects that were kind of climbing up and uh, I was doing some work for a couple of comics. I was writing some jokes for some comics. And then the writer's strike happened. And, you know, the guild sent out this email. And they're like, hey, you know, it may be gone for a while. So find something, blah, 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 blah. And it was it was stressful because at that point, financially, I was, as a writer, that's what I was trying to make, you know, make my money. So I ended up, I took a job, like a job in marketing. And I needed something, you know, that kind of to, to, uh, flesh out those creative juices. So I, I went back and took a broadcasting class just to kind of, you know, pass the time. Like I was junior college one night a week and I met the great Lou Riggs. Um, and Lou, who's since passed away, passed away about five years ago. He was kind of the guru for uh, broadcasters in, you know, in, um, in Southern California, you know, he's, and he's launched like a number of different careers. And there was a, there was a net broadcasting network in town that 
whenever they had a new broadcaster, they would send him to Lou to train, you know, Lou would train them in various ways. And so I, I kind of did, the, you know, same kind of a deal where I'd done some, you know, I'd done radio a little bit. And so I kind of got back into it. It was, I was enjoying it. And then he said, Hey, there's an ex student of mine who knows of a job. It's part, it's totally part time. And, you know, but if you're interested, I can, I can refer you to them and uh, put me in contact with that person who I'm still friends with to this day. And they sent my, my tape up to this, to, you know, to a university and I heard nothing. And then three months later, I get a call from a gentleman named Stan Morrison to come do the games at, at their, you know, you know, at their university. And that's kind of how it started. And, you know, for the first three or four years, I had a full-time job and I was just doing it on the side. And then opportunities started to come about and uh, kind of created a life of its own where you, know, yeah, you get, it's just, it's with, like with any business, you do it, you meet people, they know what's available. It's very similar to writing in a lot of ways, you know, mm. as a writer, you're writing, you're engaged with the community and the people in the community, they kind of all move up and they're like, oh, wow, this person needs this kind of script written. Why don't you, you know, go to them? And the other part of it was too, that when the strike came back, the material I was being offered to write was stuff I really had very little interest in writing. Mm. And that was part of it. And honestly, the first couple of years, it was just like, okay, let me just do this radio stuff to kind of clear my head to figure out where I want to go, you know, because a couple of, you know, uh, comics that I was working with, they kind of, their careers tried to blow up a little bit. So I was able to make a little bit of money writing stuff for them and this, that, and the other. It was something I really enjoyed doing. It was something I really wanted to get better at. And it, it was just something that kind of was in front of me. And I just, I just made that choice. I never, you know, it's like, I, you know, like you say, as a writer, writers never stop. I've, I've still always had projects that I'm doing. But it just seemed like that world was a little bit more, uh, I was able to navigate it. I didn't care is what it was. Yeah, I wasn't invested at all. It was just like, oh, wow, so-and-so needs somebody to cover this. Okay, I'll cover that. I'll make, you know, X amount of dollars for that. And then the next weekend, oh, yeah, we need you to cover this, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then the more people that you kind of, you're rolling, you're rolling downhill and the, the, the snowball just keeps becoming bigger. And uh, that's kind of how that that happened. I love it. Did you, like, do you harbor dreams now of doing you know, major league baseball, you know, NBA games, that kind of thing, or? Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I'm kind of at a weird point right now where, uh, you know, realistically looking at it, you know, I, I, I think I could be kind of a regional network guy, which is, you know, fairly good, good living at this point. So that's kind of where, that's where I'm engaging my efforts right now, but you know, you never know. Yeah. You know, you never know how, you know, a guy, you know, like I, I was think of David Chase, who was a, a great writer for for many, many years. And then he, you know, came upon this thing he'd always wanted to write called The Sopranos. And, you know, obviously that's the biggest thing he's ever written. But he wrote, I mean, if you look at his history, you know, he wrote for um, uh, Picket Fences. He wrote for The Rockford Files. He wrote for some big oh shows. I mean, uh, The Rockford you know, Files. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a big Jim, James Garner guy. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't very impressed with celebrity, but James Garner was his guy. You know, again, it's it's about kind of engaging the process in the way it takes you. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm doing. You know, it's funny. Like I, I just uh, Linda Voorhees, who's I would consider my writing mentor. She just recently retired, and she's kind of doing her own thing. But I've always kind of wanted to to send her that. You know, like just call her out of the blue and say, "Hey, I got a script I want you to read." Yeah. Um, I remember you you were the one of the first people to read one of my scripts because you know I came into UCLA knowing nothing about mm -hmm. formatting or anything. And your read of it was, you looked at it and said, it looks like a script page, go back and work on it some more. And I was like, 
what? You didn't even read it. And you were like, well, it looks like a script page. Keep working, kiddo. Did I help, and you? I was Did like, I help you at all? Yeah, yeah. No, not really. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I think, but it was a good point you were making that it was like, you know, it looks right. So you like, foundationally, that stuff is in place, but you know, you can always improve it. And the story is a first draft. Like you need to keep, it doesn't just because, yeah, it, it doesn't mean it's done just because you did the one thing. Somebody, you know, somebody told, like, it's funny. It was, I, I picked this up from somebody else, but I remember when, when you get a little bit of a um, leg in, you know, in the writing world, like something happens for you and people know that's happened, but you'll get a lot of people who kind of want to collaborate. And mm -hmm. I never knew how to like, you know, like say, like turn people down politely. Yeah. But I had a friend and he was great at it because he had some, he'd sold a, a big spec to a big company right out of UCLA. And so of course, you know, everybody kind of descended upon him and his line was great. He would say, well, you know, everybody needs to write their story, you know? So you need to write your story the way you need to write it. And then once you've written it, give it to me and I can take it to people I know, you know, because like- That is great. The biggest, I, you know, as you, as you know, the biggest separator of people is people who actually sit down and write the script. Yeah. And I've certainly right. been sucked into writing other people's things way too many times. And like that, I, so that's, that I'm, I'm going to use that from now on. Yeah. I mean, and you know, like, and like, you know, I've been out of the business for a little bit. So, you know, I, my time is a little bit kind of a little looser and I'll have people call me and they'll send me a draft to read and I'll read it and I'll give them pretty intensive notes on it. You know, and I, I you know, and honestly, I'm just, that's the thing about notes too, is I'm just giving you what my perspective is as somebody sure. who like has written scripts, has read scripts and watches movies. That's all I'm doing. Right. I don't, I don't portend to have any area of expertise in it. I'm like, this is what's on the page. This is how I'm reacting. What's on the page. Maybe I'm not your audience. I don't know. You know, but there is that thing, like people, and let's talk about writers, you know, I was telling you about betting on yourself. Writers as a, as a whole, they struggle a little bit with that whole thing about needing that, you know, that validation. A lot mm -hmm. of, you know, a lot of them, obviously there's an exception that proves the rule, correct? Um, and I look at it the same way, like broadcasting executives and film executives are very similar in that they really want to do business with confident people. Yes. And that's why you see, you see a, I'll get this all the time. You'll see a movie get made. Somebody was, I forget, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about a movie that got made. And they're like, wow, how did this thing get made? This thing was, was horrible. And we both knew the writer and we knew the reason the movie got made was because the writer, every, every building he walked into, it was the greatest thing there was. It was the greatest thing there was. Wow. Uh, yep. So that's, that's a lot of how it's done. Um, yeah. It's such a weird business because you've got to have that complete self-belief and confidence and yet be grounded so that you don't turn into a monster, you know, who abuses people and yet be humble enough that you're really open to, to telling real stories and, and hearing notes in ways that you can, that can make your work better. It's such a weird intersection of personality traits. I go back to Lou. Um, one of the things Lou teaches us is to self-critique. He's like, you should be able to listen to 10 or 15 minutes of your broadcast and, you know, honestly assess yourself. So I've been working with Lou about six months, right? And so I sent him a game that I had done. He said, okay, I want you to come in. We're going to talk about it. One of the first things that Lou told me was, a little aside, is the first time I started, I was, and it made me a little bit nervous when I started working with him. He said, you know, 80% of the people who are on the air right now shouldn't be on the air, you know? Yes. I'm like, okay. I can name a few. And then 
So six months later, I'm a little more confident with him. I know him a little bit. We have, we have a rapport. We've developed a rapport. And so he kind of likes my stuff. And I say, I say, Lou, you know, six months ago when you told me that 80% of the people shouldn't be in the business, you were kidding, right? You were joking. And he's like, actually, it was 90. I didn't want to discourage you, you know, <laughs> something like that, something like that. So I go in and we're listening to the tape. And he, as his purse, he'll listen to about 10 minutes before he says anything. 10 minutes, he shuts off the tape and he says, well, what do you think? I want to know what you think, you know? And so I go in and I go, well, yeah, I could have done this better. And on this thing, I did this, blah, blah, blah. And then he stops me and he says, no, no, no. I think you're pretty good. You know, I think you're pretty good. But that also means you're ready because you understand the critique process, you know? Because I think you're to the point now where you need to be sending tapes out and trying to find jobs and whatnot. I think you've you've eliminated a lot of your bad habits. And obviously, you're going to keep evolving as a broadcaster. But, you know, there's that critical mass you hit as a writer where you have that separation from yourself and your work. And if a good writer who's written a few scripts, they kind of know when they've cut corners or they've been lazy. Yeah. I've been removed from it. I don't know if you guys teach this. And they would teach this at UCLA. You really have to and, and there, of course there's always the exceptions right and that's what gets marketed but you really have to understand the market yeah um when you're writing not to say you should write for the market but in terms of being able to refute arguments when people make arguments about your scripts not being marketable right yes um, every story is marketable because if you get al pacino to do it then all of a sudden it's marketable right, right. So you gotta that's how you gotta that's how you gotta go about it um that, that, that would always drive me nuts is, you know, producers talking about stuff being marketable. I'm like, you really haven't read the script. To me, you, you don't know if the script's marketable until you read it. Because yeah. there's a, you know, maybe the writer isn't great at defining their concept. Yeah. But maybe you read it. You know, I, I had this experience with somebody who sent me a script and he'd just recently been married. So he's like, you know, this is just really a script about how men and women interact and it's really deep and blah, 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 you know, and That's a terrible I read pitch. it. I read it. It was really good. It was a movie. It was, it was a script about human trafficking. And I told wow. him, I said, your script is about human trafficking. He said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's about how the people right. involved on every, you know, there was like a police captain. There was like the, the, the attorney general, they were the actual traffickers. They were all in relationships. And there was, you know, it was great. It was a very, you know, I think it was probably not a studio movie, but it was something that would have gotten him attention. But yeah. I'm like, bro, you got to pitch this as a human, like a thrill, it's a thriller and it's a human trafficking movie, you know? I was like, yeah, but I really want people to know about the, I said, they will, they, you know, yeah. for them to know about the relationships, they need to read it. Yes. And that's one thing that I've kind of kept engaged in recently is it's so much about the read. It's yeah. Really you talked so about writing about for the reader. Read. Yeah. It's so much about the read now. And because it's so easy now to get us, you know, everything's online now. So, and I know that because I've been asked to read for stuff for a contest and this, that, and the other. So I, I sure. get that. I get that. And I always, you know, and I'm a guy who's always going to be pro writer when I read. So I go in, like I, you know, I'm giving the, I always give the writer the benefit of the doubt and everything, but you gotta, for me to, for it to snap for me, you gotta make it snap. So yeah. uh, it is interesting. I, you know, and I have a lot of friends who read for contests and whatnot now, and they kind of all say the same thing is we're all rooting for you, but you gotta, you know, you gotta make yeah. the magic happen. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta deliver. And it's really apparent when you don't know what you're doing and you're one of those writers that just literally thought, well, I watch movies. How hard can this be? And it's hard. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's not as easy as uh, you think. And we can tell when you've never written before and you just slap some ideas down on paper. 
if you invite me to your home for lasagna and you just stick a Stouffer's in the microwave, I won't not be thankful. But when you invite me for lasagna, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm thinking differently. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, Heidi, Cavagna, you know, she's been to Italy. Okay. You know, and uh, I, I, I won't make you a lasagna, but I will make a risotto. I make a really okay. good risotto. But I mean, like, I'm there for the company. I don't care one way or the other, but it just shows, you know, it just shows you. Unless yes. we have some kind of history together where, you know, we were roommates and we lived on Stouffer's. Okay. You got that story, you know, there's always the angle. There's always the twist. Right. Yeah. So now this is going back to broadcasting. You said something about fan mail. Yeah. Do you get fan mail now? I get a little bit. I mean, I've, it's, it's weird. It's a weird, I always assume it's somebody trying to trick me. <laughs> tell, yeah. what, tell me about that. I love that you get fan you know, mail. No, it's usually a parent of a school and they're like, wow, like, you know, like I learned so much about, you know, um, yeah, about there was a, uh, this, this season happened. Actually, I guess because of the pandemic, there weren't spectators allowed. So right. I got a lot more. I got a lot of it. I mean, I was surprised. Like people actually care. People actually, you know, but it's like, and I, again, this is about knowing your market, right? It's like, we're a very different broadcast than a network broadcast. Sure. Because yeah, mm. you know, you have the junkies, the, the college baseball junkies are going to tune in for a little bit or college basketball, but for the most part, you're, it's the families, you know, sure. it's the families. So um, the first compliment I ever got as a broadcaster was back when I was first starting out and a guy hit, he was doing, I was doing women's basketball and the guy emailed me and he said, Hey, I just want to let you know, he said, I really enjoy listening to your, you know, to your broadcast because I love that, you know, all the names of both teams, you know? And I mean, it's like, I'm like, wow. That to That's me seemed bar. like a very low, low <laughs> bar, right? But I guess, I mean, no, I guess enough people, and, and, and it's funny because the, and I, and I remember going, when we were doing college radio, the listeners have a very different take than the people who are actually, the other, other people who are doing it. Like we have, you know, like I would listen to your show or you would listen to my show or other people we would work with listen to our shows. And their experience is very different than somebody who's randomly turning it on and listening to your show. Right. You know, and I think like we, you know, a lot of times you fail to realize, even in college radio, you're not doing the show just for your friends. You're doing it for the people who are actually listening. Right. Yeah. You, you would listen and tell me not to play so much Nine Inch Nails. And would I? Okay. <laughs> no, one time you told me not to play the, I played whatever the big sing had like a hole, played the big single. And you were like, uh, do a deeper I? cut, do a deeper cut. And you were not wrong. Oh, you were not yeah. wrong. So, you know. I hope I did it nicely. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I didn't know because I didn't I didn't know that because I, I just remember that was the one that was the one for Bowden one. Right. We weren't supposed to play that song, but maybe they didn't write it. Well, because it was they, like it was the biggest single and it was so like but it was just like I wanted to hear the, that song that day and I played oh. it. And yeah, I should have played, you know, a deeper cut. Uh, like I should have played Supernaut off my little uh, my little bootleg CD, but I didn't. Most of my criticism came from hey, why are you playing all that rap? And it's all the same people who did the straight out of, you know, right, right, frame right. on their Facebook page 20 years later. So I think I won that one. <laughs> yes, but, uh, yes, I agree. Yeah. That's really It's funny. process. It's, pro it's, it's the thought it you put into the process, you know. It is. Um, it is. And I think is. that's a good thing to remember that it's not just your friends that you're doing it for. It's other people who could be, you know, moved or inspired or, or learn something from your broadcast or your writing or anything else. It's, we have this discussion a lot amongst, you know, people, other broadcasters. It's, there's two aspects to it, right? There's, you're calling a game 
which means, you know, like you're, you want to get everything right. You know, the teams, the, the contacts, the, you know, the players and all that stuff, but you're also doing a show, right? So that, yeah, I guess it would, it would equate to music, right? Okay. Yeah. You want to play these 10 really cool songs, but you also want to have, you know, kind of entertaining kind of interstitial interplay between the, the clicks of songs that you're playing. And, and that to me is the, you know, like when you, when you look at non-professional professional, to me, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Um, well, and well, I have some, I have two things to say about that. First of all, just to wrap up the other thing, I remember now we were not allowed to play head like a hole because it was on K rock. And that was, that was the dividing line. If something could be gotten in from commercial radio, we didn't play it. So I shouldn't have played it, but I did. But I, in terms of broadcasting and, and what you're saying, we're watching the World Cup, right? Or sort of the Euro Cups right now, the Euro Cup games. And there are, there's a couple commentators that we really like and a couple that we cannot stand. And we're always so bummed when it turns out that that guy is calling the game that we're watching. And the difference is in the thought they put into it. Like this one guy we can't stand is just always like making inane comments you can tell he's just read something that either, you know, popped up on a screen for him or an assistant handed him about stats. And he'll say comments about like, well, this, you know, the, the stadium is 30 yards from the river or, you know, like, I don't, what, why do I need to know that? And then the guy that we really like, he actually talks about how this person's game is and what they're doing and how it could be better and what that could mean for the team. And, and it's just so much more like, you could tell he's invested and you could tell he's done his homework and you could tell he cares. And we're like, that's, I want him to do all the games. We have a joke amongst, I mean, not, maybe not just we, maybe it's me and one other guy about <laughs> pe people who broadcast off the notes. You mm. know? And, and I, I've, I've not been watching the Euro cup, but I college baseball had their postseason the last couple of weeks and I cover college baseball. So I listen, you know, and I knew a lot of the teams that were in there and it's just really interesting that, you know, yes. So before every broadcast, the, the various schools, you know, publish notes. So when I, when I go sure. do a game between UC Irvine and, and, and UC Riverside, I get a set of notes from UC Riverside and a set of notes for UC Irvine, you know? So to me, that's the baseline, right? There's, yeah. there's like little nuggets out of it you pick, but I like to do is kind of go do my own stuff about each player, you know, in Southern California in the big West are, you know, most of the players tend to be from California and different schools. So I've taken upon myself to kind of give you a little bit more wider story about, you know, where they're from and whatnot. Like I was telling, I, I, like you were mentioning that the, the, what annoys you about World Cup. What annoys me to no end is when they're playing in Anaheim and the, the, the establishing shot is of the Santa Monica Pier. Right. You know, like those are totally we're, we're different just down places. The, we're just down the road. I said, anybody who says that Anaheim is just down the road from LA should have to make a round trip in, in, uh, yes. in rush hour traffic and then tell me yes. how it's just down the road, you know, well, that's so I'll, like... I'll make it, I'll make a joke out of it because I'll learn where these things are. And I'll say, okay, this really is down the road because it's one exit up. So if you go from this exit to this exit, you will, you're literally down the road from them. Uh, yeah. So little, little, that's the little touches, the little details that are, you know, that make a broadcast yeah. more authentic. You know, it's like a script. It's like, if you really, um, I just saw the, um, the, uh, the Quiet Place Part 2, oh, right? Yes, it looks so and, good. Um, and like those guys, like the guys who wrote the original, I guess John Krasinski wrote the sequel, but the guys who wrote, they're from Iowa. And so like Silo, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but Silos play a big role in both movies and mm -hmm. they grew up around Silos. So it's really authentic to how they put them in the movie, you know, like little touches like sure. that. Sure. 
the great Lou Hunter calls them touches, little touches like that, that are real. That's something that you can draw on like a base of knowledge that you can draw on. Like you're talking about that nobody else maybe can draw on. Um, yeah. Well, the more, the more specific you make a thing, make, make a story, the more universal its appeal because you've made it such a specific world. We can all get it. Yeah. And I should uh, also mention that, that we had Meg Gifford on a couple, uh, last last season in season one because she's the one who's helping who helped lou with his new book so oh, great. She, yeah so we got a lot of lou stories the farm boy from nebraska the great so, lou hunter yeah so growing up in jersey now you're not a lawyer but you've got this you've come you've come all these this very different outcome what would your what would your advice to uh to little little gazal be little middle school gazal you know, believe, just believe to believe you can make it happen. You know, it's going to take, it's not easy, right? It's going to take some work, but you can make it happen. Just you and, and Ted Lasso, believe. I mean, it's just, it, it's with, with anything, right? Um, uh, it's, what is it? Is it I think Mandela says it, it, it's impossible until it's accomplished, right? It's sure. Just, it's little things from, you know, cleaning the kitchen and cleaning the bathroom to finishing a script. It's like, you really... And, you know, I didn't, that was a little new agey for me, right? When I was a young, you know, like you, you knew me when I was 21, 22, like it's a little new agey, right? But it's, it's important as we get older, I don't know what your experience is and you can apply this to writing or to broad, so much of everything is like good faith versus bad faith. Mm. And we always know, you know, it's like, I think innately you always know in those choices, you know, and if you stick to the side of good faith, I think you put yourself in just a much better position to succeed. I like that. You know, always like, the, I don't know if you ever get this question, right? Do you have to be an Academy Award-winning writer to teach screenwriting, right? I would and, say you do not because I am not uh, and I teach it very well. Right. I would say no, but there's, you know, there, there's, there's context to that. And I yeah. always look at, I always look at, you know, I always look at sports, right? Is that, you know, Ted Williams arguably was the greatest hitter ever in the history of baseball, but was not a great manager. Mm. Struggled to manage, you know, for whatever reason, like a lot of, you know, the 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 uh, the main like the uh, the narrative is that well Ted couldn't relate to players who weren't as good as him right and I think that's kind of a lazy mm. lazy take in it's it. very I, different know, skill sets it's just yeah it's it's totally people skills right a lot of writers didn't like him because he was kind of short curt and kind of internal and that's probably what made him a great player but that yeah. is not what makes a great manager you know or a great teacher They're, yeah. Yeah, they're 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 great. They're players like Billy Martin is a perfect. He wasn't a great player, but he was a great manager because he was always kind of the underdog. He was always kind of doubted, so he always related to those types of players, and he would get these guys to overachieve, right? Since you do, you are in the you know the commodification of process and teaching screenwriting. I do want to make this point about the good faith versus bad faith, and that's I think what people really have to understand is that if somebody is presenting something to you in good faith, I think that's that's a huge step, right? Because there are a lot of people who are kind of more kind of cynically trying to kind of milk whatever they can out of the industry. Yeah. And I, it's, there's, there's way too many of those people who they kind of see it as their role to dissuade people from pursuing whatever they want to pursue. And mm. I've never really understood that mentality or that mindset, you know, in, in sports, we have what's called trees, right? It's, there are coaches who have players who played under them who go on to be great coaches. Mm. And we give, that's called a coaching tree, you know? So 
you know, Bill Walsh was a great coach for the Niners and he has a bunch of his assistants have all kind of gone on and been head coaches. And Bill Parcells is a great coach for the Giants. And he's had a number of people who worked under him who've gone on, you know, and I really look at that. I look at that a lot. And there's a gentleman and it's totally irrelevant to this discussion, but there's a gentleman at Santa Barbara named Bill Mahoney and Bill Mahoney just retired. And I, I'm so fond of him and I want to shout him out. So he runs their athletic department, the media relations section of their athletic department. And he's just such a nice man and very good at his job. And it's no coincidence that a number of people that he has trained have been very successful in all areas of media. And it just all comes from the fact that, you know, does Bill know everything? No, but he doesn't lie. And everything he does is in good faith. And he's very honest and transparent about everything. And I think that just goes a long way. And I would say yeah. the same you know, about to somebody about you. And that as long as I've known you, I've never known you to take on an endeavor in bad faith. You know, yeah. maybe you, you had a couple of jobs. I know that you didn't like, but you had to pay your bill. So you took them. Right. But you always, it, 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 it almost hurt you, right? Because yeah. you did invest in those things, even though you knew they weren't what you wanted to really be doing. But yeah. you did put all your effort into it and sometimes the detrimental uh, results. But I mean, that that's what I would say yeah. in knowing you as long as I, as I have. And I, I, you know, I applaud what you guys are doing and I just wish you nothing but success. And I really appreciate you inviting me to, to come share with you. Well, thanks, Gazal. I appreciate that. And, and I do feel like a sense of pride that, you know, I might've not sold one of my scripts yet, but I have clients that have won the nickel that have won Emmys that have won numerous contests. So I'm like, okay, there's, there's a little tree there and maybe they'll go share what they know. And you know, that, that makes me really happy when I see yeah, them doing you well. Know, I had a friend who who's a writer and he's pretty successful now. And he always talked about, he was always afraid of what, what should I do next? Like what, what project should I do? Right. He said, you know, at a certain point you get to a certain point. I think he was, I think he was, he turned 30 and he said, you know, I, I just decided I was going to do everything that would move me forward. So if I, I would, anything that came across my desk that would move me forward, I'm going to do it. Doesn't matter if there's going to be 6 million people watching it or six people watching it. If I can write a webisode that six people are going to watch and it was going to move me forward, I'm going to do it, you know? And uh, it's worked out. You know, he ended up getting a job with a great company. He's back in New York now, but he ended up getting a job with a great company that treats him really well. And he's churning out great, great content. That's so, awesome. I love that. Looking for yeah. what moves me forward, as we all yeah. should be. No, it's, 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 and it's all part and parcel of the whatever you want. I mean, I guess we call it the process. So I was reading about uh, award-winning screenwriters. And, and the cool thing was I'd heard these stories before, and they're all kind of compiled in one book. So I just kind of had lunch with a buddy of mine from UCLA who was working. He just signed with a manager and he'd written a pretty good script. I remember the script from when we were at UCLA and this is maybe five or six years later. And the manager had him do 10 drafts before he sent it out. So, yeah. I mean, long story short, he did end up, that was his first, ended up being his first studio sale. Right. And I, I was thinking about this book. One of the guys was a, a Academy Award. Now I don't think he won. I think he was nominated. It was Hanif Qureshi had did for a movie called My Beautiful Laundrette. Oh, sure. And St Stephen Frears directed it. And he talked about, so it's a little different situation, right? Because they're in England and he's working with Tim Bevan. And you can't, like even 30 years later, you can't turn on a movie that's British without seeing Tim Bevan's name, right? It was uh, filmed for Tim Bevan and Sarah Radcliffe first were the first two on that. And so uh, he said that, because back then, remember, they're using a typewriter. Right. So that his draft that he went to, he went to Frears with was seven or 800 pages. Oh, you know, and that was quote unquote the first draft, right? So, like, I think the draft in and of itself was 120, but 
he had put 700 pages through the typewriter before getting to that draft. And then after the director got it and took it to film four, they did two more. Sure. And in the same book, John Sayles talks about one of my favorite movies of all time, Eight Men Out. And he talked about Eight Men Out. Now, John Sayles kind of does things independently. So he said, before it went to the money people, it was two and a half drafts because it was based on previous source material, right? It was based mm. on, a, on a book, I think. And then once they got the money together between the money and the casting and the shooting, there were two more drafts there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, you're talking about being invested. Like you're, if you're, if you're selling something, man, you're invested. You're yes. really invested. So yeah, the script you know, I just, I just turned a script into a production company that we're hoping to work with that, you know, they're interested. And it's, I mean, I think that's probably the 20th draft of that script that I've done. Okay. And it's yeah. just like, how many more? How many more you want from me? I'm, I'm in. Let's get it done. I want to see this on the screen. Yeah, a, a, oh, man. a guy I knew. He's one of the one of my classmates at UCLA. Sold the script to Ben Stiller. Wow. I remember him telling me telling me that, you know, like he had a he had a friend who was kind of worked there who's kind of kind of shepherding through it. So once they got the you know they 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 kind of got the draft where it needed to be in terms of all the elements. And he said they had so like you know they were going to turn they had to, they had to submit it on the Monday. So he said the week before, Monday through Friday, he said, I was in the office eight hours a day, every day, going through that script from page one till the end every day, mm -hmm. you know? And of course he's up by, by this point, you're on a computer, you're on final draft or whatever. So it's a little yeah. bit easier, but like he went from page, like, I think at the end, the final, the end, the draft ended up ending was like 112 pages. So he said, we went from page one to page 112 every day, Monday, oh, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday took the weekend off and then handed it in on Monday. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's like, that's Absolutely you talk done about, that. you know, there's the intellectual process and there's the physical, just the grind it out three yards in a cloud of dust process. Yeah. So. Well, and that's, I think the thing I would impart to writers, you know, especially newer writers is just cause you got a draft done, you're not done. And don't think that, it's it's a bad thing that you're asked for rewrites or that you dig it. That's like that's where you really start to discover the gold. And I think that's what's been frustrating for me is sometimes seeing newer writers and you give them notes and they're frustrated or upset because they're just like, well, I, but I did the thing. And it's like, you did the first step in a thing. And they're, oh, but I heard so-and-so only did one draft and sold it. I'm like, that didn't happen. Promise you. I mean, again, that's the, if it's true, it's the exception that saw, that, that proves right. the rule, and you don't yes. know what connections they had and whatnot. Can I put you on the spot? Do it. Do you have a process that you that you're comfortable talking about? I'm just curious as yes. to what your process is. Yes, it's. it's but I know we, some of the people you've worked with. Yeah, but I'm just curious in how you refine that process. Well, it's basically it's what we teach. I mean, first to examine the, the characters and dig into what kind of what makes them tick, who they are what they're afraid of, what they need and, you know, what they're and how they're, you as the writer know things that they can't know about themselves, their want versus the need and stuff like that. And, you know, things that you would never admit, you either don't know it about yourself or you would never admit it if you did know it about yourself. Like you as the writer need to know that stuff about that character. So I start there and then I look at my act structure and I have my sort of benchmark moments and going, okay, well, if this person is this kind of person, they're afraid of this, you know, somewhere around the low point, they're going to have to face that thing. And, you know, just figuring out what the story is that goes in to that story arc that I can fit into the thing. And then from there, it's like, okay, can I bang out a draft? Yes, I can super fast. And now it's time to like, okay, refine it, make it beautiful, make it funnier, make it more heartfelt, like just keep going through it until 
it's calibrated in such a way that it's got nuance and beauty and my favorite, favorite thing to do my final, when I think I've gotten to a place where I'm going to turn it in, my final thing is to do a transitions pass where I'll go and make sure that the transition between each scene is either there's something sonically that connects the scenes or something visual that connects the scenes or, you know, an idea or whatever, just so it like keeps people speeding through the pages and, you know. So I, I don't want to get all James Lipton on you. God rest his soul. Um, Here we so go. you start with the character, right? I do. So, but, so what about, so are, are there elements? So like, I, I, I'll just tell you, like I, I've, I've experimented with a lot of processes and the best process I've come across from like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, whose movies I admire greatly, he just talks about that he'll open final draft and he'll just make a bunch of lists. Hmm. And then from the lists, he'll get either scenes or bits of dialogue and then he'll kind of sure, connect sure, sure. everything. You yeah. know, what I like to do is I like to write what I know, right? So it's like, if I'm writing Vision Quest, I'm like, all right, he's got to fight, shoot, you know, he's got the relationship with the, you know, with the family and you got to fall in love with Linda Fiorentino. So those are kind of the five or six building blocks sure. of the story. And then you kind of get, you know, in and out of how all those building blocks come about. But yeah, you have to certainly know your character from the beginning. Um, but, you know, you kind of learn. I think I think the other part of it is the character kind of evolves, you know. It definitely Sometimes evolves. from the time you start. Because you gave me a really good screenwriting teacher answer. You didn't give me a good Heidi answer, I didn't Oh, think. I see. Like, where do your stories come from? Like, where do you get your stories or... The last story I wrote, the last script I wrote, uh, that is, I just entered in some things. Uh, I, I had a dream. I had a dream that my dog was trying to get to me and that I was on a boat that was pulling away from the dock and I was screaming for her to like, you know, you probably can't make the jump, but you have to try because otherwise we'll be left behind. You'll be left behind. And I remember thinking, woke up thinking, I'm so worried. Would she listen to me? Would she try to make that jump? Would she, you know, do we have that kind of a bond. And so from there, I wanted to write a, a story about a dog and, and a bond or lack thereof to a hurt human. And so I did kind of what you're saying. I like, I wrote out, what do I know about this dog? What do I know about this person? And, and so I wrote it and, and it got scratched the itch of telling the story of that I wanted to tell about from the inspiration I had for my dog. And then I kind of realized, yeah. And the supporting characters aren't really as developed as they need to be. You know, so then I just digging back in and figuring out, okay, well, what arcs could I give them that contrast a little bit that maybe pull some more humanity out of the dog? We get a little bit more satisfaction out of what they're going through and how they end up coming to love this dog as well. And so, yeah. Look, it reminds me, it's, like, it's kind of, a, it's a wonderful life, right? It's very much, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. yeah. And it's really funny because it's, it's, it's a wonderful life. It's all dogs go to heaven and it's defending your life. And I didn't even really, I, I was so going from this dream I had that I didn't even draw those comparisons until after I'd written it. And I was like, oh yeah, that did, okay. You know, it's like we absorb so many inspirations and so many influences and they're in there, you know, without our even awareness half the time. And then they come out in these various ways, who knows? So I think that's, I guess that's my process is looking for the sparks and looking for how do they fit into what I know works for me? If I have the scaffolding of this structure that I, that works for me to go for. And then, you know, where, where can I make that special? Where can I make that more heartfelt? Where can I bring more humanity in? And, you know, if I can make it, if I can make a reader cry, that's always a bonus. Jim Valvano, Jim Valvano, we need to laugh, think and cry every day. There we go. Those three, those three things every day. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the beginning of up. 
you're crying, you're crying your eyes out. And by the first 20 minutes, I'm like, you're hooked. I'm into that movie. I'm with you for the rest. I'm like, all right, there we go. We really need to wrap up, but I'm having so much fun. I just wanted to put you on the spot. You know me. I just wanted to put you on the spot. But no, we're, I mean, this has been really fun. I appreciate you doing this. I, yeah, it's it's weird for me because it's to surrender control because I'm usually the one doing the interview. So it's it's a little strange for me, but it was fun. I I enjoyed it. Well, thank you for, you gave me a soft landing. You gave me a soft landing. Yeah. We could definitely do one talking about writing. We could do one talking about 90s college radio. What's the what's the one band that you're still listening to that you've discovered then? You know what I listen to a lot? It's like it's just funny you bring this up. So I had a friend who worked on a movie with uh Greta Gerwig. Sure. Who was from Sacramento. Yes, she is. So and I am uh I'm afraid to because I just like basically my friend said, Hey, next time they do an event, you'll come and you'll meet, you know, because I'm a big Noah Baumbach guy who's her husband. Sure, right? sure, yeah. Um talk about and, power couple. Uh, but I wanted to ask her, like, so I've been listening. I, you remember Tiger Trap? Yeah. They're like the, that all girl band from Sacramento. I'm like, I'm guessing she's a little younger, but I'm guessing that she would have been in that group that would have been yeah. influenced. And I, I keep, I keep waiting to hear them on one of her soundtracks, but ah. it hasn't happened. One of these days. That's half the reason I got into writing. So I could, you know, choose the soundtrack only to find out we're not the ones who choose the soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you can, depends. You can, yeah, you can, you can, you can, you can figure it out you Depend, can depending on like how, how, how the process works. Right. But yeah, I, I want to know where my Sebado t-shirt went. Cause I know I wouldn't have thrown it out and I can't, I've never been, I haven't found it for years. Oh, like where's my Sebado t-shirt? That's tough. Yeah. You know, yeah. these are the things, these are the things you one worries about when, when childhood is behind us. Right. Thanks right. you for adulting with me. Gazelle. I really appreciate it. Were we? That was, Not that really. was cool. That was fun. If this yeah. is adulting, I'll take it. Next time on Hearthside Salons, another inspiring conversation with another fascinating creative. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.